before with Dale motherfucking Comstock and his beautiful wife coming from tropical Bali and here in Maryland it's snowing and it's freezing and I'm sitting on a blanket inside because I'm a bitch but Dale take well actually Dale introduce your wife to everybody yeah so um so obviously we're calling from Bali um this is where we live this is our home we have a second home in Panama City Beach Florida um, but this is where we spend the majority of our time. We have a business here, a security company, actually calling from the office right now that she's the director of. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's Bali, man. What can I say? I wake up every day. It doesn't matter if it's raining and it's cloudy. It doesn't matter. It's Bali, man. And so it can only suck so much. And, uh, and for anybody that's listening out there, the temperature never drops below 80. It never really goes over 90. All year round, day and night. It doesn't go over ninety. It doesn't go over ninety. No, it's never, never. Oh shit! It's just amazing. Yeah, because we, we're on an island, man. So we get that ocean breeze. Okay. And it just kind of keeps everything level all the time. All okay. Year round. Okay. I was on the yeah. mindset that like it was never cold, but you were dealing with like, I mean, like Iraq level heat. Like I lived in Georgia no. for fifteen years, and that's some bullshit. No, no. Oh, not so- at all, man. Um, you know, it's it, what's funny though is the Indonesians are so acclimated to this temperature that literally, if it drops below eighty, they're like wearing ski jackets and freaking <laughs> you know knitted hood uh, caps and stuff and like mittens and like what the hell's going on here, right? And uh, and they do it on a motorcycle all day long. You know, they ride around on these you know all bundled up. And I, I keep asking, what's the deal with that? And uh, you know, I get different, you know, I get different responses. One is, you know, it's cold riding the motorcycle at 85 degrees. <laughs> or two, there's a superstitious thing about the wind touching their skin, you know, and it'll make them sick. Um, really? I don't know what the truth is, but it's the most bizarre shit to see, you know, people bundle up here. Like you would be bundled up right now walking outside in Washington. Yeah. Um, you know, that's how they dress here. It's like, that's impossible. I can't. If I wear a pair of long pants, for sure, man, I'm going to become a heat catcher. I'm going down, man. You know what I mean? So i got to wear shorts and a T-shirt. And I change my T-shirt a couple times a day because it's just saturated. It's just- my wife, my wife, sorry, um, you know, she's like, okay, right now she's pretty casual. But uh, I guarantee when we leave her tonight on a motorcycle, you know, she's going to be clinging to me trying to keep warm. But like, you know, it's, and it's warm out there. <laughs> I, I, I think she's just trying to cop a feeling, you Dale. I, I think the weather. Yeah, I think that's that, an excuse. Yeah, she's she's going they for the American. She's going for the American badass. She's groping you. That's they, what it is. They, they hey man, no one can. Resist. Hey man, neither could that guy in the barracks that was looking for you. You know. <laughs> hey man. Hey man. It's take a win. You know. You gotta take it. Do whenever I've been hit on by a gay guy. You know. Not interested, but flattered. But um. So for. <laughs> For everybody listening, we're going into American Badass Volume 5. We're going through because the book, which will be available in the description and link will be sticking in the top comment. And I put Dale in touch with uh, Noah Levine, who is an Audible narrator. And I'm hoping Dale's going to get that shit narrated because if you're not on Audible, man, you're dead. You, you got to put it on there. My generation doesn't <laughs> read. We just listen. Now that's And that's one of the reasons we're doing this yeah. podcast. So I'm telling the story, but... Uh, if I tried to read my book to you, my story, 
I sound like a total, you know, I don't want to say retard, but no, pretty much pro- like a first grader. Yeah, yeah, no, no. And, uh, we both sound retarded. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, I'm good, you know, it's, it's, you know, I can write it, I can read sure. it, but I can't read it out loud, you know, with stumbling, stammering on my words. Yeah. So, yeah, I want to get a professional to actually read it. Um, but here on this podcast, obviously, I'm telling the story in my mm-hmm. own words. And uh, I think, uh, you know, people will get a lot out of that as well. Yeah. Um, I'm going to write the second book. So, that's, uh, you know, again, everybody said, hey, you're going to make that audible? Yeah, I'm going to make that one audible too. And uh, and I'm going to try to crank that one out by June at the latest, man. Because um, I'm getting, you know, I'm getting a lot of interest in that book because of the stories that are in it. And we'll talk about that later on um, as we continue on the podcast, you know, the volume two of the American Badass series. So, And, and you've, um, been, you've, been, you've been teasing me for over a year. And for, I mean, we've, cause we, I remember we talked about Delta and then we talked about, and the first episode I did with you, episode 50, I asked you about OGA, my dumbass thinking you hadn't heard of that unit and you're nodding and you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I go, oh, you were in it. Can we talk about it? And you look me dead in the eye and you go, no. And I started laughing. <laughs> I started laughing cause I thought it was trying to, I thought it was trying to, you know, it was kind of a show. And then you just don't say anything. You stare at me. There's like a moment of silence. And I go, okay. <laughs> so we move right on. But I remember asking you this past summer, I was like, I was like, Dale, is there anything like above OGA? And you're like, that's the tip of the spear. That is, you know, that is the, you know, Mr. President, what do you need? And I was like, ah, okay. And then like you text me back like a minute later and you said, but nothing compares to my mercenary work. And I was like, well, what do you mean? And you're like, well, we can't really talk about that. And I was like, why the fuck would you say that? And then not be able to. So that's what I am most interested in. And I know that's 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 way down the road for episodes and books and shit. But I do. I've I've told that story to people. I'm like, Dale did mercenary work. And apparently it is the the Mount Olympus of of warfare. And you have yet to go into detail. So when people ask me, what does he say? I don't know. Dale hasn't told me anything off camera and it's kind of bullshit. But yeah, back back to Dale. Uh, yeah, right now going in American Badass and then hopefully down the road, some mercenary stories. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. That's the, when we get to that point, there's actually going to be a lot of stories. Uh, so I, the next book picks up where I left off in 2011 when I wrote American Badass, right? So it's a continuation of the Dale Comstock American badass slash, you know, smart ass slash dumbass saga. <laughs> um, all the things that I've done since then, which is pretty, pretty cool. Um, my, my wife, Shari, has been a part of a lot of that in the last, you know, the seven years that we've been together. And uh, a lot of it she didn't even know happened. Until way after the fact, she's like, what are, you, "What are you talking about? What did you mean? What do you mean you did what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were out. I thought you were out doing a consulting job. Yeah, kind of, you know, consulting the bad guys. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's gonna be. It's gonna be the year. It's gonna be twenty eighty. I'm gonna be ninety years old, and there's gonna be some declassified record. They're like an an agent named Dale Comstock, American. I'm gonna be like that motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'll all come out, man. It's I mean, it's already out there. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, uh, there's a lot of reporting out there, news reports, soft rep. I did an interview with them just to get ahead of some bullshit that was coming down the pike regarding uh, one of my stories, uh, one of the things I was involved in. I didn't uh, I didn't want to come out and talk about it, but my name was dropped. Um, I was compromised. The entire team was compromised to a news reporter about by a seal 
who was trying to make some money, okay, go figure. And uh, he basically just kind of broke off sec and uh, he put us all out there. So I had to get ahead of this thing to kind of save my ass and keep myself, you know, keep us out of trouble, but more importantly, tell the actual truth. Yeah. Um, so anyways, that'll come down the road. So today what I want to do is just for everybody that's listening out there, um, you know, Tom and I have been, we've actually been doing podcasts together for over a year now or close to a year and uh, on different topics, but uh, we made the decision to go through my book chapter by chapter and have, you know, have me tell it in my, in my own words. Actually, we're going through like two or three chapters at a time per episode. And uh, I just thought it'd be kind of cool to tell my story in my own words, you know, and uh, give the anecdotal information that goes with that. Um, but all this is coming out of the book, The American Badass. Um, so we're going to pick up today. We're in, I uh, think, volume n- number five, right? This is yep. the fifth one? Yep. And it's, yeah, five, right? So we're at basically uh, in the chapters Carcel Modelo, which means uh, uh, the model prison in Panama City, or Panama, uh, Panama City, Panama. <laughs> Sometimes I got to distinguish the two because I actually live in Panama City Beach, Florida. <laughs> but I'm actually talking about Panama City, Panama. Most, right? yeah, so, um, most people don't have that yeah. problem when they're talking about because I went to Panama City in spring break for college. Most people don't have the problem of differentiating between Panama City and Panama. And it's like, well, no. When, so when Dale's telling a story about, like, breaching a door with C4 and a, and a rifle, it's he has to distinguish <laughs> Panama City versus Panama. But, yeah, sorry. But, yeah, Modelo Prison, yeah, Kurt Muse. Yeah, so, so last time we talked, um, man, it just seems like it was yesterday, too. The week is just flying by, man. Here we are again, right? So... Last time we talked about uh, my experience, um, a little bit about my combat experience and things like that. You know, in fact, I just did a podcast two days ago with somebody else, and we addressed this as well. So uh, everything's like, ooh, you know, it's trying to keep it deconflicted. And remember what I said: it's to be a little challenging sometimes. But um, so this is Carcel Modelo. So up to this point, I've talked about my time in the 82nd Airborne Division, the LERPs, the 325th Infantry, my time in Grenada. Um, I talked about the selection process to be a Delta Force operator, and I'll just kind of pick it up there just a little bit before I go into the next phase. So uh, I went through OTC, the operator training course, um, and again, it's still part of the selection process, right? In fact, in Delta Force, selection is a continuous process that never ends. And those were the words that were, that were you know, given to me when I made it across the hall to my squadron when I made the assignment. Um, and I went and reported to the Sergeant Major. He sat me down and said, hey, man, congratulations. Welcome to you know, A Squadron. And uh, I just want to remind you that selection is a continuous process. And you're not putting out 101% every day. We don't need you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Damn. You know? And so uh, and it's true, right? It's true. There's no room for loafers. And, uh, yeah, sometimes some guys have some bad days, you know, and, uh, you know, the, the sets slow down a little bit. Nobody knows that. But ultimately, you know, um, you know, everybody's expected to get back up to speed and, and uh, keep up. So, um, but I went through OTC, you know, after I made the Delta Force election. And let me just kind of go back on that a little bit um, as well. I addressed it last time, I believe. Um, what makes Delta Force selection different from any other assessment selection course out there is, you know, for example, and I'll use the Navy SEALs, BUDS, you know, uh, whatever, the 
Marine Corps basic training, infantry basic training, special forces selection, ranger school, um, all these schools you go through as a group, as a class, right? Um, they have a class nomenclature, no class, you know, eight, you know, yeah. 89, right? Whatever it is, right? And so you go through as a group and then, you know, and you have to do all these tasks as a group and, and uh, you know, and then there's probably there's individual tasks, but collectively, you know, you, you work together, right? And so with that said, I believe that, you know, you have a, a little bit of an advantage of being selected or making it because it's really easy to when you're when you're falling behind to draw some energy, draw some motivation, some confidence from everybody else and kind of camouflage yourself in the herd, right? <laughs> um, and so, because I've been through some of these schools where I've seen how that works, right? And it's very possible to do that. And so, um, the difference between Delta Force selection and any other selection program out there is a Delta Force operator is assessed and selected on his individual merit. He, he doesn't go through as a group, as a, there's no team events, okay? Uh, when he goes through his selection, um, He's not harassed. Nobody's yelling at him. Nobody's calling him names. Nobody's encouraging him, saying, hey, attaboy, you're doing a good job. It's done with a stoic look on the face by the cadre, right? You don't know if they like you or they hate you. They look like robots. How do I know that? Because I was a cadre myself. Um, so I know the role that I had to play. Um, but basically what we don't want to, what they don't want to do is advantage any student or give any students any confidence or hope or discourage a student, right? And the idea is every student that makes it through selection, he makes it through on his individual merits, right? On his own merit. And so he doesn't experience any external stress from people yelling at him, going, I'm taking your name, you know, I'm keeping score, buddy, you know, or anything like that. Um, in fact, you're not told what the standard is. You don't know what the minimum standard is. You, know, you have no idea how long the course is gonna last when it's going to end, when the day's going to end, what's next, how long is the madness going to go on, yeah. right? Only thing you're told is do the best you can. Like, what does that mean? Do the best you can. Like, well, I guess that's like wide open, but how long can you go wide open every day and night, you know, day after day, and you don't know when where the finish line is, right? And so, and you don't know what the standard is. You don't know how to modulate or in any way, you know, um, you know, you know, calibrate your movement so that, you know, you ensure success. Yeah. It's like, there's one speed, it's wide open, balls to the walls all the way. Yeah. And so, and you're by yourself. And so the stress that you experience is the stress you put on yourself. The stress of not knowing what's next, how you're doing, are you gonna make it, you know, are you about to get canned? So When you don't know all these answers, right, and you, all this stuff starts going through your head, you start building pressure, right? Stress. And then what really happens um, is the physical part. You, you push yourself so hard physically because you don't know what the minimum standard is. So you have to do the best you can, which means 100% wide open, you know, standing on the gas the whole way that day in and day out, your body starts to break down. And I don't care what kind of shape you're in, dude. I was in, I was in Olympic condition when I went there, um, best shape of my life. And, uh, you know, and there came a point where like, okay, my body's broken, man. I mean, it's like, there's nothing left in the tank. I mean, it's every day it hurts to move. 
and uh, I just can't squeeze another ounce of energy out just to get just a little bit further down the road. Um, and what happens is that affects your brain, man, psychology, right? In fact, when your body breaks down like that, and it doesn't want to move forward anymore, the only thing that's going to keep it moving forward is this, yeah. your willpower, right? Yeah. And so and it's not even just your willpower. Something I discovered uh, later in life, um, part of my coaching program. It's not all about willpower. You can have all the willpower you want, but if you don't have the body to make it, right, and your mind is, you know, you don't see the outcome, you don't imagine it, you don't imagine the ending, and the here and now in the present tense and feel it, you'll never, I don't care how much willpower you have, never make it to the other end, right? So there's more to this thing than just, you know, guts and, you know, physical fitness and being, a, you know, and being a beast. So, I can remember standing out in the field, you know, in a muddy farmer's field one day. It was raining. It was cloudy. Um, I didn't have a map. I just had a drawing, a piece of paper that I made, you know. Um, you know, I was basically orienteering off the terrain, which I couldn't see because it was foggy. Um, and I didn't know where the hell I was other than standing in the middle of a plowed farm field with mud up to my knees and had nothing left in the tank, man. I'm standing out there going, I can't move anymore. I can't even get my legs out of the mud anymore. And I started crying, man, like a little bitch, right? And so, and then I was thinking, man, if I see a truck go by with the cadre, and I'm gonna flag him down, yeah. and I'm gonna, I'm gonna call it quit, take yeah. me out of here, right? Yeah. And uh, uh, luckily, that never happened, right? And no vehicle showed up. Even if they did, they wouldn't have seen me because it was foggy. I'm standing out in the field by myself, right? So I had no choice. I had an idea though that my next RV, rendezvous point, was on top of a mountain, right? Which was somewhere toward my front. And so I figured, well, if I can get to the top of the mountain, there will be cadre up there, right, with a truck and water, right? And I can go to him and say, go, sir, I'd like to voluntarily withdraw, right? I'm gonna quit. Yeah. And they'll put me on a truck and take me back to the heated barracks and I get a warm shower and some food. And then I'll regret that I ever quit, yeah. but then it's too late, right? And so I got up there and I got right, I finally made it, right? I forced myself to climb that mountain, got there. And uh, when I got to the top, I'm like, oh, thank God, there's a truck. I'm, I'm done. And then I thought about it. I was like, well, why would I quit now? Because it's all back downhill. I could roll down that hill to the next RV. You know? so, so I started rationalizing on this. Okay, okay, wait a minute. Calm up, slow down. Yeah, yeah, we can do this. So I continued on, right? And, uh, and off I went. So, the, so that part of the course is very hard, very challenging. All the stress you're under is self-imposed. It's all your, it's all of your doubts, all of your fears. Everything is coming to bear at one time and you're creating all that. Nobody's doing it to you. Nobody's stressing you out. Nobody's encouraging, nobody's discouraging you. They're just telling you to do the best you can. And you're like running off with your hair on fire. Like, I don't know if this is the best I can, but I'm gonna go wide open, right? And <laughs> I can't go no more. So it'd be like, it'd be like if, it'd be like if I joined a race, but it was like solo and, and it, I don't know, is this is this a 100-meter sprint or is it a marathon? And what's the minimum requirement? So do I sprint it and not because I don't want to get kicked out? Or do I, I'm like, no, I got to take it slow and, you know, reserve my energy. But I have no fucking idea. So it's always, do I sprint? Do I not? Because you, you don't want you don't want to burn it all. But at the same time, you're like, I shouldn't. I don't want to be getting a, a worse time because I put too much energy, like kind of, you know, left it on the, like, put it in the bank kind of thing. Exactly. That's a, that's a good analogy, man. Um, it's really that, right? You you don't know if it's a 100-meter sprint 
or you know a 50 kilometer freaking run yeah right and you don't know and so you decide well you know if i sprint do i have to do it in two seconds yeah you know or do i have two minutes you know you don't know so it's like just go as fast as you can and you sprint beyond 100 meters before you know it, you sprint more than a thousand meters ten thousand meters you're like shit is this ever gonna end right and you're still sprinting and you're wondering how much more you got left inside of you to, to finish. Do the and, best uh, you can. So do the best you can. Do the best you can, right? <laughs> do the best you can. And uh, and the other thing was you weren't allowed to run roads or trails. You can't, nothing, man. That was the other thing, right? And they were literally out watching you, man, with binoculars and shit, trying to ambush you. If you got caught, and you would call it, they call you a roadrunner, right? You got caught as a roadrunner, you're out. Right? Oh, so you, you wow. had to make sure you were off-road, off-trail, actually going over land right so think about that for a minute right <laughs> so i mean you pretty much have to be a human deer man just yeah. to negotiate all the fallen trees and shit right and to get through the woods um and then and so that's only part of it that's only one part of it right so you if you're fortunate enough like i was um i finished the course of the 110 that started six of us completed it and three of us ultimately got selected so, happened twice a year. So what does that mean, though? So six, six finish. Does that mean that e- so even if you finish, you don't necessarily make it? That's right. You don't make it, right? <laughs> right. So the six of us that finished the physical part, right, the, the overland course, right, of the 110 that started, six of us finished, okay? Then we got to go back, go, hey, boys, go shower up, get like, some hot chow, you know, and, uh, you know, Put on a fresh uniform and, and uh, comb your hair and shit and wipe the mud off your nose. And then uh, the next step was you had to go back to the psychologist again, right? Uh-huh. Um, you, spend, you do multiple trips to the psychologist, right? He's always analyzing it. And uh, and so, you know, he'll ask you a bunch of questions. You know, you don't know why he's asking questions. You kind of think you know, but so you just, all you can do is answer it truthfully. Hopefully it's the right answer. And then, uh, and then, of course, he compiles all his data, you know, and his analysis. And, and then uh, that goes to the commander of the, of the commander's board, which is next, right? Um, the last thing you do is sit in front of the commander's board, which is all the, all the unit commanders, whether it's troop and squadron commanders and the Delta commander and all the sergeants major, right? Troop sergeant, squadron sergeant major. So you basically sit in the middle of a floor in a chair, right? Um, with 15, 20 guys sitting around you in a horseshoe pattern to your left and to your right and to your front, right? And they're all senior ranking NCOs and officers and and, uh, and you're basically sitting in a chair like, you know, it's the, it's basically it's the kill zone. And they're gonna ask you a lot of questions. And, uh, and to be honest with you, they're gonna ask you a lot of questions that you're not even sure there's an answer to that, but they, they wanna see what you're gonna say, right? What comes out of your mouth. and. Um, at that time, I was—I just turned 23, and I just got—I was the youngest guy to get selected ever at that time. 23 years old, I was the youngest operator. Minimum age was 22. The average age was 33, and uh, so I was like—I had one four years in the army. I was married to my first wife. I had my daughter at the time, um, a little baby girl. She's now 36. That's a long time ago. Um, and uh, here I am sitting in front of these guys, wet behind the ears, you know. And I don't have a lot of military experience. I actually don't have a lot of life experience, you know? Yeah. And uh, and so they, you know, the questions started. And man, there were some crazy ass questions. Um, and all you could do, 
all I realized was I don't think there's a right and wrong answer. Yeah. All I can do is rationalize my answers and show them that I'm thinking about the I'm processing this thing and trying to come up with what would be a smart answer, right? Solutions. Um, because I don't know what the answer was. I don't know what they were looking for, right? And I'm trying to maintain my poise, um, let them know I got the confidence to be here and that uh, I will make the right decisions, the best decisions that I can make. And so, anyways, I was three of the six that made it. And uh, and so off we go to OTC, the operator training course, for the next uh, about six and a half, almost seven months, including the uh, accelerated free fall course. So I went through OTC, um, you know, and I had my, you know, my, my challenges there, um, but I made it at the end, you know, with another commander's board. So you're always being evaluated. I mean, and you're tested and, and you know, they put you in all kinds of stress situations um, to see how you can perform. And I can tell you a lot of guys don't make it through OTC for a myriad of reasons. Um, guys get shot, um, you know, guys quit. They just can't focus. They can't figure out, they can't think fast enough on their feet under pressure. And, uh, you know, they're deemed, you know, just not uh, not suitable for the job and they're out of there, right? Um, again, I was one of the lucky ones, made it through the end, made it through the commander's board again, and uh, ended up walking across the hall, we call it, to my squadron, and uh, reporting into the sergeant's major over there. And, uh, you know, that's when I got the, the my initial in briefing was, congratulations, welcome to A squadron. Selection is a continuous process. If you don't put out 101% every day, we don't need you. I'm like, yes, sir, Major. It really doesn't end. They just, right? You So if you're not doing it, they're just like, get the fuck out. Yeah, pretty much. Dale? Dale? I think we just lost connection with Dale. Dale Comstock. Is it my internet? No, my internet's working. Dale Comstock. Let me... Colleges. We've been checking this guy out, you know, and he, you know, he's coming unhinged, man. We can't use him. Whatever. There's a lot of reasons that... Dale's breaking up. Dale. Let me go check the router. Dale. <laughs> He's gone. <laughs> Tom, you still there? You know, it's a, you know, it's a toilet. Hey. He usually does that. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> I just keep talking. My connection's breaking up. Come back through. All right, I just re- yeah. We've been here waiting for you, man. What did you do? Go take a leak? No, I wanted to check the router. You fro- You completely disappeared. You like froze up yeah, twice. No. So I went to check the router now. 
Yeah, it was yours, man. It was the snow. Yeah, it's the well, yeah I know. Yeah, it's not the weather there, Jesus Christ. But sorry, yeah. So I was the last thing you you said that was is I said so it's a continuous process. Get the fuck out, and then it kind of froze up. Yeah, well, pretty much. Yeah. So, anyways, uh, so I, you know, anyways, I made it to the old squadron, got went to my team, and then uh, you know it was a great experience uh, being on a, on a on a Delta team. You know, I was automatically as soon as I got there. Besides being an assaulter. Um, I was designated the the, uh, the team breacher. So my job as a breacher was to learn all about the explosives, uh, not just explosives, but you know, mechanical breaching, manual breaching, ballistic breaching, explosive breaching, how to get into a target, right? And uh, and so I became that guy on the team, which was cool, man. I, I learned a lot about breaching explosives and things like that. that. Um, so anyways, that takes me to uh, 1989. So there's a lot. So I got there, it was 83, 1983. Um, and then, you know, I had a lot, I had a good time, you know, we did a lot of cool stuff, especially back in that era. Um, you know, we were still focusing on, uh, hostage rescue on aircraft, aircraft takedowns, you know, and, and, uh, and, I, you know, it's kind of cool to be a part of all the, this whole evolution because, you know, we were modifying our TTPs, our tactics, techniques, procedures, even equipment and weapon systems for, for the mission, right? Started to evolve. Um, we went from MP5s on an aircraft to, you know, CAR-15, right? Realizing that, you know, wherever we go to take down an airplane, it's not going to be. The, your, your audio broke up. Can't hear you. Fucking internet. I don't think it's me, Dale. Dale Comstock. He's coming back through. Is he coming back through? I don't think it's my internet. You there? Dale, I can hear you. Okay, there you are. Okay, yeah, car 15. Yeah, car 15, planes. Nope, broke up again. It might be the snow. There might be a... You bet? Yeah, I think it's on your end. It, it might be, man. Well... Fuck, I'm sorry. Let's keep going, but dude, if it keeps breaking up, don't don't. I I, I have no I have nothing to do it. I'll, I'll I'm gonna sit here and listen. But if yeah, you, we're good, man. You can always chop it up. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. No, I don't give a fuck. Yeah. So, anyways, long story short, I uh, had a good time, you know, and uh, um, finally, 1989 rolls around, and I actually had the opportunity to go to the Special Forces Q course, be a Green Beret while I was in the unit, right? So. Um, it was actually me and three other guys from my squadron all went to the Q course, um, and I w- became a light and heavy weapons expert um, through special forces training. And so it was a cool little break. I got the tab, the long tab, and then I came back to the unit around December 15th of uh, 1989. And I know at that time the unit was preparing to do an assault in Panama, all right? Because at that time in the Noriega uh, regime, you know, he was doing a lot of quirky shit, um, and uh, there are a lot of issues, but basically we were preparing to go to Panama to, one, liberate the country from him, but two, um, to rescue Kurt Muse from Modelo Prison, right? So who, who is Kurt Muse? Um, Kurt Muse, he says he's a businessman, he belonged to a Rotary Club in Panama, and basically he got arrested for, you know, signal intercept operations right i was just in the rotary club you know okay 
you can read it any way you want. You know, let's just call, call it, you know, we could be CIA, whatever the hell you want, right? There's a reason Noriega rolled him up because mm-hmm. he was he was collecting SIGIN, signal intelligence, right? Is what he was doing. Um, so he ended up in Modelo Prison. Modelo Prison is the model prison. It's a new prison built and, uh, you know, it's supposed to be the best of the best and the best of the best. And so they had him locked up in that for a while. And, uh, we had a doctor going in just to check on his condition and stuff. And then it, the decision was made to go in and, you know, liberate, you know, Panama, take out Noriega and rescue Kurt Muse. But it was going to start with the rescue of Kurt Muse at Modelo Prison. That was going to initiate the invasion. Well, we had to get that guy out first, right? So um, the squadron was training up to that point. They were already rehearsing, right, for that for that mission, if, you know, if it were to come to fruition. I arrived back to the unit, I think it was around December 15th. Uh, the next day I went out training. I got fragged in the leg really bad from the flashbang. I know that sounds kind of stupid. You know, how do you get a, how do you get a fragmentation wound from a flashbang? It's a stun grenade, but it actually happened. Uh, this was back when we had the mod, I think they were called Mod 120s. The new flashbangs, the, the first uh, the first generation. And, uh, you know, they had a hell of a blast to them. You know, they had photographic flash powder in there, plus, you know, all the other stuff to give them the big boom. And uh, my teammate, we were clearing a room, and I basically opened the door, and it was, was outward, and I didn't realize it, but the door ripped in half. So half the door was still in the doorway, and my teammate behind me threw the flashbang around me, and it bounced off the door. On the inside, rolled down by my feet, landed right next to my ankle, and then detonated, right? And so it was like somebody took a baseball bat it just took my legs out from behind me, right? I mean, it had some, it had some kick to it, and so I fall on the ground. I'm bleeding like a stuck pig, and I got a big ass wound in the back of my leg, and I'm flopping around like a fish. And uh, of course, whatever lessons learned from that, you know, the, the lesson learned from that was if you throw a flashbang in a room, look first, and second of all, don't throw a flashbang in a room. Roll it in the room, right? <laughs> so these are lessons learned, you know. And everybody out there going, "Yeah, you freaking amateurs." Well, let me tell you something. The lessons that everybody else, you know, lives by today probably had its genesis in the unit, yeah. right? And we pass those SOPs on to, you know, what we call Range 37 and a lot of Spec Ops unit out there. They learn from us. And so, you know, um, what's range, we were the pioneers. What's Range 37? Sorry? What's Range 37? Yeah, the, Range 37 is another, it's another complex out in Fort Bragg where they do special operations training for special forces. Okay. You know, somewhat similar to what we were doing. Okay. Um, so it's, that's what that was, right? So at the end of the day, man, um, you know, it, it's, you know, lessons learned. And, you know, it, the unit was always evolving. We were really, we were the predecessors to, you know, what I would call modern day CQB close quarter battle and all the techniques. In fact, a lot of the stuff that you see out today, the weapons and equipment, uniforms, all had their genesis in the unit. All of it, man. I mean, it's it's amazing what we came up with over there, right? Because first of all, we had you know unlimited money, um, so we could we could toy around with stuff and create stuff, and it was all with the intent of coming up with a better better gear to accomplish the mission, right? And so, of course, you know the rest of the army benefited from that, and the rest of the military benefited from it. You know, we were the first ones to use the Car 15, 556 Car 15. I mean, they had them in Vietnam, but we were actually still using them. Um, we started started adapting with uh, QXL dive lights, you know, and we mounted the first 8.8.2 thousand on top of the carrying handle, you know. We were making we were making it work for us, right? We we actually took their first 
and PBS uh, uh, the 915s, which was the night vision goggles, like a big box attached to your face, mm-hmm. right? Um, it was just goofier and shit. But we actually adapted those with Velcro so it would fit on a Gentex fighter pilot helmet, you know, and we could wear all that, you know, and, and do our mission. And so that's how we started. It was like Stone Age material then, yeah. you know. Um, back then it was high speed. But from there, we involved to where we are today. Now you look at the night vision devices, you look at the optics, you know, you look at the um, flat top rifles, you know, with, you know, with, with the uh, you know, pick a rip tail, uh, pick titty rails, all yeah. that stuff on it, right? So it all has Genesis there, everything, including the SOPs. Um, that unit was light years ahead of any other military organization in the world, period. You and know, because there's no money. The there's no to, sorry. There's no money restraint. Right? Sorry, I know we have a delay. There's no money. So there's no money restraint. So there's not because you always hear kind of like you know I've had I had friends in the army. You know they always just talk about it. it's just like you know it's like the worst shit. You know it's just like everything's like hand me down. But you you guys it was like. It was like Olympic. Te- it's like you know. It's like when Nike like outfits like the U.S. Olympic team. It's like no expense spared. They just fucking yeah. Okay. And there's a reason for that, right? So here's a reason for that, right? So all right, people throw the word around tier one out there all the time. Tier one, right? Yeah. Tier one. I'm tier one. Tier one. You know, they're tier one. I'm tier one. We're all tier one. Right? They have no idea what tier one is, right? <laughs> tier one. Basically, Delta is a was a tier one organization. What that meant was. It's always in a state of war. Always, even in peacetime, it's considered a state of, a state of war, right? Because we're always operational, and because of that, we get wartime funding. Okay, uh. so a nuclear-powered submarine is tier one. Okay, right? certain air assets are tier one. Right, Delta Force is a national asset. It's tier one. Oh. Right, then you have tier two. Who's tier two? Green Berets. Okay, um, your seals. Um, Rangers, right? And then you have tier three, right? It's the second string, third string. But tier one was Delta. So we had this pretty much unlimited budget. Fuck yeah. Right? That's why we could do and none of that, we didn't have a whole lot of people. So yeah. I mean how much money could you know, how much money could we spend, you know, between us, right? So uh but anyways, um so that's what tier one, tier two, and tier three looks like, right? And uh and that's why we had the kind of budgets that we had, and because we had that kind of money we were able to create so much that the rest of the military, in fact, the rest of the world's military has benefited from. They looked at us and go, damn, you know, and they modified even the Russians, the Spetsnaz, look at their shit now, it looks like our shit, right? <laughs> um, they're watching, man, they're looking and learning, okay? Um, so anyway, moving on. What finally happened was 1989 came around, uh, the manager of Panama, and, uh, you know, I got blown up. And so now I'm, I'm in a hospital, I got about a six-inch scar down the back of my calf with a hole in it, right? And, and uh, they had to literally dig out chunks, big-ass chunks of cardboard, metal, and wood that went up into my leg, right? Um, which was kind of funny because what happened was when the grenade exploded, the gas that came off of it was like a jet, yeah. right? And that jet of gas shot into my leg, opened it up, right, and just basically sucked all kinds of shit up in there, right? Wood, metal, dirt garbage right it's in fact my leg full of junk so they had to cut me open you know bring all that out of there you get it all here and get it out and then staple back together well now i'm basically in op right i got one wheel and uh, the other one down so you know the unit's going to do something with me so they put me on permanent staff duty until i healed right so basically that meant that i would sit in the staff duty office you know all day and night, answering phones, you know, and uh, in a suit, you know, and, and basically answering questions and shit, right? Um, 
I was the night watchman. So when everybody went home at night, it was just me in the in the staff duty office. You know, um, answering the phones, you know, watching TV, you know, and fiddling around, right? And uh, so this particular night, I remember it was a uh, June, uh, not June, but December. I believe it was December seventeenth. I get a phone call from JSOC, Joint Special Operations Command, said, "Hey, Blue Smooth, in fact, alert your unit." And I knew what that meant. Said, oh shit! So we back then carried the pagers. So I hit the pager thing, right? Alerted the unit. Um, you know, my squadron was on standby. They came rolling in within you know probably thirty minutes. And uh, there I am standing in my suit, and my crutches, you know, on one leg, you know, watching everybody go by. And then uh, the, the, uh, my troop sergeant major, or troop commander, came in, Major uh, Colonel uh, Gary Harold, Major Harold, and uh, he later on became the, the Delta commander. But uh, he rolls in and he he's asking me for the brief, what's going on, you know, blah blah blah. So I give him the, the intel dump. Here's what's going on, sir. Here's the mission. You know, here's the here's the warning order. Um, you know, basically going down range. You guys going down range because I ain't because I'm broke. Yeah. Right. And so. He's, he's looking at me, and I'll never forget, man. He, he's like, Comstock, he goes, let me say, let me ask you something. He goes, because so I was going through a NASA divorce, my first divorce, right? Sure. Many. Um, but it was the first one that kind of set the precedence for all the other ones, and it never got better, man. <laughs> and uh, But the first one, so I'm going through this bad divorce. My wife left me. She took my daughter with her, you know, left me with my 18-month-old son. All kind of weird shit was happening to me, right? And then I got blown up, and, uh, you know, I'm, you know, I'm in this really weird place mentally and now physically on top of that. And so he says, look, I'm like, I know you're going through a really bad divorce right now. And uh, he goes, but and he goes, I know you you know, you got one leg left. He goes, but I wouldn't feel right not offering you the opportunity to go with us. He goes, this is the Super Bowl. This is what we've been training for. He goes, you're the preacher. He goes, really, man? He goes, I'm going to give you the opportunity to go if you want. And he goes, if you don't want to go, I understand. No problem, right? You can, you can have, nobody's going to be mad at you, right? And uh, he goes, up to you. And man, I, I thought about it for about two seconds, yeah. right? And I realized what he said was true. It's like, yeah, this is the Super Bowl. Yeah. And, uh, and then I thought, you know, what the hell with the ex-wife? You know, screw her, yeah. right? And and I'm out of here, man. And so I yeah. said, hell yes, sir. I ripped my suit off and I hopped down to the squadron, <laughs> you know, got my shit together, threw it in the back of the vehicles. And, you know, within a couple of hours, man, we're, we're on our way. Fuck and um, we go down to Panama and we ended up in Howard Air Force Base in Hangar, uh, Hangar 3, actually. And, you know, and basically, you know, we knew what the mission was. And the hit time was actually at zero, 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 one hours on December 20th, right? And so we're going to hit Modelo Prison at midnight. Uh, my squad, my troop was going to go in there and then basically keep Kurt Mims out, liberate him, and, and basically you know, rescue him. And, uh, and that would be the beginning of the invasion, right? So it was going to be a, be a big invasion, but we were, we were the spirit, literally. And that's why I have the spirit device on, my, on, one of my, on one of my ribbons, right? Because we were literally the first ones in to, to start this whole, this whole fight. And uh, so I remember we showed up down there. And uh, so at this point, I have, I have not rehearsed for the target because the day I was rehearsing, I got blown up on the first on the C, first CQB ever evolution. I'm already down, right? <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I got no idea what's going on, what the target looks like, what I'm going to be doing. Um, and so we got time to rehearse down there. And I'm the breacher. And my job is to build explosives that's going to breach the annex on the roof of Modelo Prison, right? Um, I got to get us inside. And I'm like, all right, cool. 
And uh, so literally the first time I ever saw the target or knew anything about it was when I was on the target, right? Uh, which was, you know, pretty cool. So I got all the intel, right? So the intel we got was from our intel sources, you know, the government. I said, hey, this is the this is the door configuration. The annex was about 10 by 10. It was on top of the roof, the third floor, uh, third story uh, building, the prison. And uh, we're going to go into this annex down the stairs, right? Third floor, second floor, which was where Kurt Muse was uh, being put uh, in prison. It was on the second floor. And uh, so the intel I got was, was wrong. Actually, what I was told was there was a steel door on the top, and that's why I got a breach. I said, okay, that's easy peasy, right? I go through my little breaching book, do all the charge calculations, you know, and I uh, start building the charge. And then without getting into the details and breaking OPSEC, um, I built the charge and I thought, well, shit, you know, it's on top of a roof. There's nobody going to be behind the door except bad guys. So, you know, why don't I just put some extra explosives on there, right? The P factor. P, factor, P yeah. for plenty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I packed some more on there, right? And, uh, I had over two pounds of C6 on the goddamn charge, right? And, uh, <clears throat> which it didn't call for that. I mean, I could have got away with probably a quarter of that. And, uh, I actually touch some more on it, put some more, man, give some more, you know, like, buddy, let's just stick some more here, yeah. some more there, right? yeah. and, uh, and, uh, why not, right? Yeah, so Super I'm glad I did now. When I look back, I'm glad I did, right? So what happened was, um, so I'm going to breach. So we're going to come in. We had four helicopters, four uh, MH6 little birds mm-hmm. with the people pods on the outside. And uh, we had two assaulters on each side. And basically, we're going to land all four helicopters two by two on the roof. We're going to dismount. We're going to line up on the annex. My job was immediately on the first helicopter, run right to the breach point and start placing the charge and prepping everything. So once the entire uh, assault element was lined up and we got the countdown, I could fire the system and boom, we blow the door and down we go. That was the basic plan. And so um, it was a total of about 15 ships all together. You know, four of the uh, MH6 uh, helicopters with the people pods on them, two uh, AH6 Little Bird attack helicopters, uh, I believe it was four Cobras, um, and maybe four Apaches, uh, right? It told about 15, 16 helicopters, including the C2 Blackhawk that the commander was in above us. <clears throat> and uh, so I remember going, I'm going backwards, right? So it's HR. So what, what we're, we've got the snipers deployed already. Um, they were out on target for probably about 12 hours, you know, in the wood line, watching objectives. And uh, the prison itself was in an area called the Commandancia, which was the command headquarters area, right? And uh, it, was, it was actually two blocks. And the prison was in a second block across the street from the headquarters. And so what we're going to do, we knew we were going to get a lot of shit from the Commandancia, and the Panamanian Defense Forces, they all lived in and around the area. They lived in the apartments, you know, they had their guns with them, you know, so this place was a hornet's nest. And um, so the mission was fly in, land on the roof, assault, right, knowing that we're gonna get a big firefight with everybody, you know, around us. And uh, we gotta get this guy on the helicopter and get it out of there, that's the mission, right? So we're at Howard Air Force Base, and, and it was gonna be 0001 hours, I believe, it was the hit time. And what we started getting, we started getting reporting back from our snipers and go, hey man, like seven hours out, they're starting to shore up the corners, they're putting 50 caliber machine gun emplacements in. Um, they're really beefing everything up, including the prison, right? The prison already had 60 plus um, prison guards and then suddenly they got another 60 Panamanian Defense Force soldiers uh, to augment them. Like, do they know? 
And yeah, they knew, right? So they knew we were coming. How did they know we were coming? So uh, this is why it's important to uh, manage operational security, right? So not talk, right? We slip sink ships. So what, what happened is, two, we, I know two incidents. There may have been more, but one was an MP, military police guy. He was down at the, around the canal area, right? He knew about the invasion, the pending operation, and he's told all his Panamanian friends, hey, guys, don't hang around here tonight. You know, there's going to be bad things happening, you know? So that got a radar up, right? What's going on there? And then another guy, a Marine, calls on the mommy, mommy, daddy, I may never come back home. I love you, you know? And that got intercepted also, okay? I won't mention the company, country, but it got back also, right? So there was at least two optic violations that compromised the salt. So what we had to think about was, well, what do we do? And the decision was made, we're going to push it right 20 minutes. So, so the assault went down 0002, or 0020 hours, 20 minutes after midnight, right, was the new time. So we only moved to 20 minutes, right? It pretty much we're in a place, crossroads, like, you know, if we don't go, might not get the opportunity. Not only that, um, all of Fort Bragg was already on C-130s and C-141s en route, right? It's like... We can't stop this thing. It's on its way, right? Yeah. And so there, there is like a swarm. There's 15,000 paratroopers on the way and rangers, right? And so so we went forward. So what I remember that night, before we got on the helicopters, we had to, you know, we're flying little birds. And they're not very, they don't have very strong engines. In fact, the, the models back then, the engines on them were, uh, as I understand it from a briefing from the, from the pilots was, the same engines that are on a little bird helicopter are used for irrigation pumps in farms. Jesus Christ. Right? So that's what's holding this helicopter up. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> like, okay, no, that's kind of interesting, right? We're flying with an irrigation pump. It's you know? terrifying. So, <laughs> it's, 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 it's full circle, Dale. It's you in a, in a farmer's field during a training, and now it's you with a pump right? from a farmer's field. <laughs> exactly, man. I'm going to farm. Exactly, man. So... So what we had to do, because they only had so much power, it's like we really had to trim a lot of weight so this thing would actually take off, right? And yeah, land safely. And so we had to, so we, we had to weigh every operator, right, with all this kit on, and we knew what the maximum, you know, load was, aircraft load was, right, what we could put on there. And uh, look, some of the guys were pretty damn big. And I was actually the lightest guy. I weighed 164 pounds, and I had the lightest amount of equipment on, which was 70 pounds. And that didn't include, I had no water on it. That was just bullets and things that hurt people with the explosives. And I was at 70 pounds with the shit and you guys, everybody else was having me. So we had to take, strip the avionics out of a lot of the helicopters. Hey, you don't need an altimeter. You don't need a speedometer. You don't need all this other shit. Get it out of here, right? Yeah. In fact, two of the four helicopters like, you don't need this other pilot. Get him out of here. You only need one pilot, right? So two of the helicopters only have one pilot. And what's interesting is the other two helicopters had two pilots. Each one of the, those pilots in each helicopter got shot. So uh, they got they had two pilots, right? Uh, so, Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, and so you're talking about irony, right? And so <laughs> we, 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 we stripped the weight out, got them lightweight, and uh, so that we could get on and fly, right? And so anyways, time came, lift off. It was a six-minute flight from Howard Air Force Base uh, through across the Bridge of Americas, over the Panamanian Canal through um, Ancon Hill, which was basically a, a saddle in between some hilltops. And then as soon as we came over that saddle, right, you, you basically were swooping down with the jungle areas and you could see Modelo Prison in Panama City, right? It was pretty cool. And uh, 
I remember we lifted off 15 birds by flying formation, blacked out, and we know this is it. We're getting ready to go do it, right? And so we're cruising, and I still remember like today, crossing the Bridge of Americas, right? It looks like it looks like the uh, San Francisco Bay Bridge going across the Panama Canal um, between two hilltops, right? We flew over that, you know, and then went over to uh, Incon Hill, flew down over the saddle, and then as soon as we came over the saddle, we started coming down, and we were only maybe 30, 40 feet off the deck the whole time, right? We were flying really low and really kind of slow um, because of the weight. And then uh, as we got about maybe 30 seconds out, um, the snipers already knew to initiate, so they just started. They started pulling the trigger, and uh, they just started dunching dudes everywhere around the commandancia, right? And that's when the shit started. And we're coming in pretty slow. And what happened was, um, because of the buildup prior to the assault, the civilians around there were like, "Hey, what's going on here? Something's going to happen tonight." So they came out with all their lawn chairs and barbecue pits and shit, and we're literally like waiting for the Mardi Gras parade, right? So I mean, the streets were lined with people it's like sitting a, in their lawn chair going, what's, what, what's like going to happen? It's like a form, of, right? it's like a form of gladiators. Yeah, yeah, they were watching. They were waiting because they, they had no idea what was going to happen. But they knew something was going to happen. Well, they found out all right because when we came in, dude, all hell broke loose. I mean, there were a lot of guys on the ground. So you had not only the Panamanian Defense Forces, you also had the Dignitary Battalion, right, which was their militia. Um, dudes dressed in civilian clothes with AK-47s. So they know those helicopters aren't theirs, and they're shooting that up, up at us. There's thousands of people, you know. They're running everywhere like cockroaches, man. I mean, in every direction, you know, scrambling for their lives and shit, you know. And and uh, and so it made it very hard to discriminate, like, who's the good guys, who's the bad guys. There's so many people running and people shooting. Who's who, right? And you're in a moving helicopter, at about 30, 40 feet at a super slow hover. And, uh, you know, you're trying to engage targets, you know, you're hoping you don't get shot. And the prison's coming up, you're getting ready to land on it. And the pilots had to fly in pretty slow. They couldn't just come in and do a dynamic hover and set it down. They had to kind of sink it in there because of the weight, right? And uh, they, they had to play with the pedals and the, and the, and the lift of the helicopter. And so we're, we're coming in and I'm on the first bird, right? We're on top of the roof now. and you know, you pretty much at this point, like, really switched on. And one of the things that was really surreal about the entire assault was in the unit, we always train for real. We use only live fire ammunition all the time. You know, we didn't do blank fire. You know, live role players, you know, target discrimination, live explosive. So when we train, we train for real. We didn't simulate jack, right? So going in and doing this, it actually felt like the training scenario. We've done so many of these, right? So the only thing that was different was, actually it was nothing different. People were falling down because we were shooting them with blanks or, you know, we were, you know it was simulated or it seemed like, but they were actually dead, right? And so, but it didn't quite register that way that, you know, this was, you knew it was real, but it just didn't ramp yeah. you up, right? So anyways, I remember hovering and, and where he's trying to stick the helicopter on the roof, he's trying to hold it steady. And there's not a lot of roof, room on the roof. And I remember looking down on the street at about maybe 30, 40 feet from me, maybe 50 feet, something like that. We're on the third floor, and on the on the street level, I see a guy running out, and he's got about five women 
very tightly closed around them, right? They're winning as a cluster and they're holding a couple babies, right? And so remember, I'm looking down like at a 45 degree perspective, but I can, I see the guy to this day. I still remember what he looked like. He was wearing a white Guayabara and blue jeans. He was probably about five foot seven. Okay. Panamanian dude holding an AK-47S with a, with a collapsible stock on it, right? Um, paratroop model. And he had it up here at Fort Arms. And he had it oriented up at the birds. And he was moving backwards with all these girls around him. And they were trying to get across the street. But he hadn't taken a, a shot yet. But I had already picked up on my song. And I had to make a decision. Do I shoot now and risk? Because I'm going to move in helicopter still. And this guy, they're all moving. Do I take a shot and potentially miss and hit a kid, a woman? Or maybe I get a through and through shot through his mug, through his melon, and hit one of the other women behind him? All this shit's going through my, I'm processing going super fast right now, right? It's target discrimination. And uh, I'm like, man, I want to take the shot. And I have an eight point on, but, you know, it's, I got to think about, you know, is, it, is he an immediate threat? Yeah, the gun's up, he's looking up, but I could tell by his movement, he wasn't sure what he was going to do either, right? He wasn't committed to the shot yet, and but even the weapon was up. So I hesitated for a second, and they were moving backwards, and there was a cemetery behind him. And the wall was about maybe, I don't know, a four-foot-high wall. And then as you go through the wall, the, the opening was an arch, right? It was an archway. And uh, and so they all made their way through that archway together. And something told me, stay on them, because I, I don't know if I was hoping or my intuition was telling me that all these women and kids would bear off to the left, and he would button hook to the right and come back over that wall. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what happened. Right, they broke left. He hooked right, came up over the wall with his weapon up, and I was waiting for him, you know. And I let, and I let go of him. Um, Game and so by that time, then the helicopter landed, right? <laughs> yeah. And so I grabbed my shit and I run off, you know. And I run up to the door and I place this charge. And uh, now, to my surprise, it wasn't a steel door. Oh, there's a steel door there, but it wasn't just a steel door. So in front of the steel door was a jail door. All right. And it, had, it was about six inches in front of the steel door. And they were both locked. So now I have standoff. I got a jail door at six inches in front of the solid steel door. But I've got now, you know, these bars, right? The problem is when I place my charge on the length of that door, I'm not getting a lot of charge to surface contact, okay? Yeah. The charge is only making contact with the bars, the, okay. you know, the horizontal bars. Okay. And so... And I need to be able, I need this charge to actually push this door in, right? Not just blow it up, but push it in. It's not going to cut it. It's got to push it in. That was a good idea, right? And I'm thinking, holy shit, you know, this is not what I was planning for. This is not, you know, this is not the configuration. But then I thought, well, I did use the P factor. So I put extra on there. It's got some extra ass on it. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe it'll go through, right? And uh, I'll push the gate, the, the jail door through the steel door. So the other thing that happened was the tail of the of the, the, the priming system was longer than it needed to be, right? So I won't go into how that happened, but basically my team helped me build that system. And, uh, you know, it was longer. It was too long. When I say it was too long, it was it was long enough that, it, that when I pulled the firing system, it got caught on my boot. Okay. Now, why does that matter? Because two things happen. 
when we landed, all hell broke loose. We're taking fire from all the high rises around us. I'm out in the open on top of this prison in front of this annex, placing a charge, and I'm taking rounds from everywhere, man. I'm like, oh shit, you know? But I can't leave. I gotta put the charge on it and I gotta stay there because I'm gonna initiate it when the countdown is ready. So I gotta hang out there in, in this area, right? And so we're, we're taking flak from everywhere, bullets from everywhere, from the prison yard, prison towers, the high-rise buildings, the commandantia. Um, hell, we were actually taking it from the 197th because we brought the 197th in on their APCs as blocking positions, right, to come in and lock down the corners of the road. Well, the 197th Infantry, this was Christmas time, was gone. They went to the U.S. for Christmas. So the, the stay-behind element was the cooks and the clerks and the mechanics. And the other one was driving the APC and manning the machine guns, right? This is not even their job. They're doing it. So they're just kind of shooting everything that's in the way, right? <laughs> Moving, right? including us, right? So it was kind of, it was, you know, it was definitely making. And um, so I'm standing out there on my knee, and, you know, it's it's dark, flashes of light, gunfire is loud, helicopters landing, you know. And I'm, I'm trying to, you know, keep my composure, trying to, you know, sense, okay, where's everybody? Are they lined up yet? I'm listening for this countdown over the radio, you know, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of shit going on. I'm thinking, man, what if there's a dude on the backside of the door getting ready to let loose an AK-47? You know, I'm like, there's a sensory overload. Um, and then the problem was I was using two and six fuse igniters, right? So the way we had designed them back then, we taped them together with electrical tape. And I actually taped um, the safeties together with electrical tape so I can just grab two safeties with one lanyard and pull it out with this tape together. Um, well, the problem was several things. One, it was dark. Two, it was humid, right? The electric tape was coming off. I was wearing flight gloves. When I grabbed the safeties, actually only one safety came off and the other one was still in it because the tape came apart, right? Um, I didn't know that. And I put my fingers through the rings and I'm pulling and nothing's happening. And finally, I'm thinking, okay, I know I pulled this thing hard enough for it to go, right? And I'm freaking out because I only had an eight-second firing system. Eight seconds. And I've been fooling around with this thing for at least four seconds now. And I'm going, shit, is it burning or not? I can't tell with all the noise and fire, you know, everything's going on. I don't know. I didn't, you know? And uh, so I'm thinking, my, I'm counting my head, 4,000. If this thing, if I pulled it, it's going to go off any second now, and it's going to go nuclear, and I'm going to go up in here in pieces and parts, man. <laughs> and so and I'm thinking, ah, it's got to be burning. I know I've done everything right. So I get up, and I run around to the formation, and as I do, that damn, that excessive uh, uh, dead cord got caught on my boot. And I remember as I'm moving, I can see the damn charge coming off the door behind me. It was falling like a tree, right? And it, it kind of like slowed down in slow motion, right? I could see it fall over behind me. I go, oh, shit. <laughs> and it lands on the, on, the, on the ground, right, on the roof. And I run around into the stack, and I'm standing there, and I see the charge laying out in the open. And I remember the commanders yelling at my troop, or my team leader, going, fix it, stay, fix it. And I'm thinking, what's Steve going to do? Steve's not the breacher. I'm the breacher. Nobody can fix this thing. I fix this thing, right? Yeah. And right now, you know, I don't know if it's burning up. I'm in my mind. I'm counting. You know, 4,000, 5,000, 6,000, 7,000, 8,000. Like, okay, it ain't, it ain't going off. So I run back out there and I grab it again and I run back to the door and I place it on it again. And I remember telling myself, all right, Comstock, by the numbers. Yeah. By the numbers, Comstock. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and so again, I go back to the process, the procedures, right? And 
I still wasn't sure what happened, but I pulled each ring. One of them would not would not go, right? And I grabbed the other one, I pulled it again, I turned it real hard, and now I can tell that one that one fired. Yeah. Okay, I could feel it, I knew it fired. So I knew I had at least one that was gonna burn. So I got so excited, instead of running back around into jumping into the stack, right? I ran around on the opposite side where all the fire was, pretty much exposed myself to the enemy fire, right? Um, in, the, in the prison yard. Because I just got excited, like, I gotta get out of here, right? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I went around that side, ripping in the stack, and boom, this damn thing goes off, right? And it was like a nuclear weapon when it went off. So that jail door, it worked. It, it came off its hinges like a flying platter. It hit the second door, the steel door, knocked it through, went to the back wall in the annex, went sliding down the stairs, and perfectly moved it out of the way and ended up against the wall. So it didn't obstruct our movement going down the stairs. It was really cool, man. Um, and so, boom, it goes off. We all go in, we assault, we run down the stairs, you know, and then uh, we go down to the third floor. Um, one of the other teams goes down to the second floor. My team starts clearing the third floor. And uh, I remember my one of my guys, my assistant team leader, we hit one room, and it was just me and him, and he's like, let's go, you know, and I'm like, let's go, right? And so what happened was um, he went in, and he went straight. I went into my to the right, right, which is procedure, and what we didn't know, this was an L-shaped room, right? So when he went left, I went right, suddenly we can't see each other anymore. We got, you know, this wall in front of us with all these rooms. I'm like, damn, we're separated now, right? I can't see him. He can't see me. We can talk, but we don't know who's between us if this guy's in that room. And it turned out it was a photo lab, which is kind of weird, right, in a prison. But they were, you know, they had dark rooms, right? And uh, so we quickly communicated our plan. It's like we'll clear individually. We'll clear each room and we'll meet in the middle, right? So we did. We did all that. And then by this time, the other team had gone down to the next floor. And Kurt Muse was in his jail cell, and he had uh, the interrogator that was with him was given specific instructions that if anything happens, any there's any gunshots, anything, your job is going to shoot this guy, kill him right off the bat, right? That was his mission. And uh, there was actually two guys down there. The second guy, he just lost his shit, literally, man. He just fell on the floor and was like freaking out, like, please don't shoot me, you know, flashbangs going off around him. So he lived. Um, the interrogator lost his nerve. Right, so when the assault team came in on his room, he just made a beeline for the, for the bathroom, right? There's like a little shower in there, very small, like a closet. He runs in there and he's got a handgun and he stands in the shower like this, right? And my friend, James, uh, who's James Sutter, he's, he's passed away, unfortunately, a long time ago. Um, but he, he was on this guy's ass and chased him into this bathroom, right? The guy was waiting for him with a handgun drawn, ready to, to you know, start shooting when he came through the door. And James went with his car 15, shot the guy four times in the chest. The guy never got a round off, right? And game over. And then we had to breach and blow those jail cell with Kurt, get him out, put body armor on him, helmets, all that stuff, you know, and basically get him up to the helicopter. Well, my team was still on the next floor up. And uh, it was pitch black in this place. And it's, I mean, gunfire is like crazy. So I'm like, well, shit. I'm just standing here waiting, and there's a, this big um, balcony there. So I laid on the balcony, and I'm I'm shooting dudes in the in the prison yard, right? And the guards and stuff, and towers. I'm out there just shooting, you know, shooting fish in the boat, right? Having fun and doing my job, right? And so I'm out there doing something, right? And just hanging around the hallway, waiting. Yeah. And uh, so I'm laying there in the prone position, 
And, uh, you know, I can hear the helicopters and gunfire. It's really, really noisy, man. And it's pitch black in this place. And so what I was waiting for was they brought him up and took him to the helicopter. He's the first one out, right? They get him on his helicopter. He's in, they're going to get him out of there. And then the rest of us were going to peel out, go up the stairs and get on our helicopters, you know, as, as the birds were landed and fly out. So I'm laying there in a prone position. I'm shooting away, shooting away, thinking at any minute now, somebody's going to pat me on my legs and come on, let's go, come on, Fox Drop 1, let's go, you know. And uh, actually, I was Fox 3 at the time. Fox Drop, no, Fox Drop 4, Fox 4. Uh, <laughs> come on, Fox 4, let's go. But that never happened, right? And I'm laying there, and I'm like, oh, you know, we still got time. And, Really keep having fun, right? And so time went by, and then I thought, I heard the helicopters landing and helicopters taking off on the roof. And I'm like, God damn, it sure it's taking a long time, right? So, <laughs> and uh, so I use my legs, I'm laying down, and I'm sweeping my legs behind me to see if I can feel somebody's feet, right? Just to, just to make sure that there's still people there. And I did that, and I didn't feel nothing. And I'm feeling back my arm, the free arm, and I'm like, I don't feel nothing. And then it really occurred to me that there ain't nobody else here but me. I'm the only guy inside the building. Jeez. Well, I took the bad guys downstairs, right? And I could hear them coming up the stairs, right? I could hear them speaking in Spanish, you know, and I could hear glass breakers coming up the stairs. I'm like, holy shit, because they were actually, they had barricaded the bottom floor because they were expecting a ground assault, right? So that's why they were only on the ground floor. And when they realized we're coming in from the roof and we're leaving by helicopters, they started coming up the stairs. And I'm sitting there realizing, that I'm by myself inside the prison with the bad guys coming up the stairs, right? How about shit in the pants? <laughs> so uh, I run up the stairs, man, like I stall the dog, and, oh, and in the dark, you know, I'm feeling my way up the wall, and I run out of the annex, and thank God, man, my, my troop was still there. Uh, not all of them, but my helicopter was still sitting there in the hover, and I run around to it and get on my pod, and somebody's sitting in my seat. Like, hey, you know, that's my seat, you know, it's like, no. It's panic time, right? You're my hey, seat, get the get out. <laughs> We're all gonna get out. Yeah, right? it's not, that's not a question, but it kind of like I kind of got kind of a. Uh, you're going by the bus, right? You're like that's why. You're like that's why. Yeah, you're going by the numbers, though. It's like that's my spot. Yeah, that's my seat. Yeah, yeah. It's got my name right there. Get your seat. Yeah, get, you know, get the fuck off. No. And uh, and so the the guy was sitting there. Um, it wasn't Larry Vickers. Larry Vickers was, was with me on the way in. It might have been Larry. I can't remember now. But he realized he was on the wrong bird. So he gets up and runs back to the second little bird and opens up my seat for me. And we take off. And and so what was supposed to happen was, according to the plan, my helicopter would be the last helicopter to get back to Howard Air Force Base, right? And so when we lifted off the roof, dude, we're taking ground fire from the prison. We're, you know, there's ground. There's fire coming from everywhere. And... I don't know if you know what a 50 caliber tracer looks like when it's coming at you. Only way I can describe it is it's a flaming basketball, Jesus right? Christ. When it's coming at you, it's like in slow motion, and it goes under like whoosh, and you're like, like, oh, damn, you know? It's like freaking like a meteorite. <laughs> and you see like a lot of them coming at you, right? And so we're getting that coming off the roof, you know? We're getting ground fire coming off the roof. And uh, when we landed at Howard Air Force Base, we were the only helicopter to land. We we're supposed to be the last one. Like, what's going on here? So my team leader gets off, says, you guys stay on board. And he ran over to the, what's called the J-Mal. The J-Mal was all the, uh, the doctors, the surgeons. They were all waiting with their medical gear. They were yeah. expecting mass casualties, right? So they're all, they're all waiting, right, on the tarmac, you know? And uh, 
he runs over and I can see the talking going on and stuff. Then comes running back and he's like, "Hey man, we're uh, fresh magazine in. We're going back in. The, the PC got shot down." And I was, "We're going back in. What? <laughs> we're going back in." So up to this point, it was like training, right? Um, it just didn't, you know, it just didn't feel scary. But after I left, and I realized everybody, including the Americans, were trying to kill us. Right, it's coming off this thing, not intentionally, of course. Yeah, um, I realized how dangerous it was. I was like, Holy shit, now yeah. we got to go back into the hornet's nest, yeah, and stick our hand in there, right? And what happened was when Kurt Muse, his helicopter lifted off the roof. First of all, you got to remember this because of the weight, it couldn't just pick up and fly away, yeah, it had to. It had to kind of get off the ground, pick up speed, yeah. get forward momentum, and actually mm-hmm. dove off the roof, all right, and get lift to start flying because of the weight. And when it dove off the roof, the guys on the ground lit it up, man, from, 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 the, from the ground down positions, right, just fire, fired it up. So they shot the bird down, is what happened. It flew a little bit, went down the road, hit some power lines, so, you know, then turned into an alley and crashed into the alleyway. And, uh, so all the operators that were on there, including the pilots, were injured, right? Um, a couple of them got shot. Um, James, the guy that went in and chased the guy into the, into the bathroom, he, uh, he went, everybody was tied in to the, on the pods, right? When it, the helicopter slammed down and bounced, he fell off and swung underneath the helicopter and his foot went under their skin and took all his toes off his foot, right? Um, and so we're all laid out on the, on the street and the only guy that's good to go is Kurt Muse because he's all wrapped up in the, inside the helicopter, right? And so the helicopter's laying on its side, the rotor's still spinning. Um, Kurt gets out, he looks, and all the guys are there laying there unconscious, right? And he sees uh, my assistant team leader laying there, and he had a 45. And the bad guys are coming down the street now, right? So Kurt's like, oh shit, you know, what am I gonna do? The rescuers were all dead or unconscious. Yeah. It's just me now, right? So he goes to grab the gun, and when he does, he starts to walk forward and he starts to step into the spinning rotor blades. And my ATL who saw him, um, his name's Tom, Tom Caldwell. He's paralyzed actually now from the waist down from another helicopter crash we were in five months later. Um, he sees what's going on, about to happen. He gets up and he grabs Kirk Hughes, pulls him down. And in the process, Tom takes the rotor strike to the, to the helmet, right? And we were in Protec helmets at the time, plastic helmets. So basically, he shaved it off, knocked his ass out. Um, you know, he, he was unconscious, right, from the rotor strike to the head. But he saved Kurt Muse. They probably would have taken his head off. Um, and about that time, um, our another element we had, our QRF, came in on APCs, and they recovered everybody through the back of the uh, APCs and with threes. And they, and they rolled out. And then we got the word, just as we were lifting off, standing down, PC's been recovered, everybody's on the way back to, to uh, our Air Force base. Um, so that's kind of how that night went down, right? Um, you know, six minutes, Kurt Muse wrote a book called Six Minutes to Freedom. He talks about his experience. Um, he only knew the experience from his time mm-hmm. in the prison um, and the part of the rescue. I actually inadvertently gave him the whole story because I asked him to write I didn't ask I asked him for a testimonial when I wrote my book and I sent him the entire manuscript and well let me just put it this way you won't see his testimonial on my book right and uh, and money I'll just say this money changes people let's put it just I'll just leave it at that money you, changes Kurt. people right fuck you Kurt Dale 
Daily froze up again. Dale, motherfucking Comstock. It's me or the snow. I don't know who it is. But Dale froze up again. Hopefully he comes back. Dale Comstock. You there? Wait, wait, I can hear him. There he is. Yeah. 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 So yeah. yeah. So Kurt Muse. Yeah. Yeah. So money got to him. Yep. Daily froze up again. Dude, it might be my weather. It might be mine. Dale. Hey there. Yeah. Yeah. It, so basically, the last thing I heard was um, the reason he didn't endorse it because he was had a movie deal going on, right? And I'm like, damn, ain't that some shit, you know? He's got a movie deal going on, and uh, I just gave him my whole manuscript so he knows how the whole thing, the whole movie's going to go you know? And he couldn't even write, a, a, you know, hey, thanks, Comstock, you know, for the, whatever, right? Nothing, man. And I, I feel it really, I really, it really irritates the shit out of me, and I don't mind saying that. Yeah. Um, I got the email, um, so I got proof, you know? But uh, he had his reason. He said his lawyers would, you know, they would lose their shit. And I thought, well, the hell with your lawyers, man. You know, um, there's a thing called honor and integrity, you know. And, and uh, anyway, so, so that's happened. Um, am I mad? No, I'm not mad. You know, my book's still a success. I just kind of felt like uh, sometimes, man, you just uh, you just don't know people, man. Mm-hmm. And uh, so anyways, I'm glad he's alive. I'm glad he gets to spend his time with his family, um, you know. I did my job. Yeah. I don't need nothing else from anybody else. Yeah. You know, I don't need praise or money. Um, I just did what I had to do, right? But the story I felt like should be told yeah. because it's not just, it's not a, it's a tribute to the unit, right? And their success. And it's a tribute to Americans and American um, courage, you know, American resolve, man. American ingenuity um, allowed that to happen. And that's what's really cool about it. It's not, it wasn't about me. It was about all of us, man. And what we achieved that night, which was amazing. Right. Um, so anyways, um, that's the story basically of Carcel Modelo, right? Modelo prison, the Modelo prison raid. Again, that was December 20th, 1989. And, uh, one of the, it was one of the highlights of my career for sure. Obviously why, um, it's, uh, it's not the only thing I've done, though. It's exciting. We'll be talking later on about some other stuff that I did that uh, I would I would put on the same level um, as far as you know personal prestige is concerned. But uh, um, good times, man. You know, and uh, looks like we're about twenty minutes after, so we're, we're right on time. Yeah. So uh, next time, what I want to do is I want to talk about uh, the next chapter. The next one is going to be. Um, Eagles are chickens, right? And so that's yeah. the title of the chapter. And uh, it talks about five months later when we came back to Panama. Yeah, the right? It was liberated, and we came back, and we're going to go do jungle training. And then how that ended up, you know, in a bad helicopter crash for me, um, bad helicopter crash for my team. And uh, it was actually the third helicopter crash one of my team members was on in, in six months third one in six months Jesus Christ. And it was that one that Perryson paralyzed him for life um, him and others but uh, anyway so it's, it's an interesting story how that all went down and uh, we'll, we'll start with that next time around fuck yeah so, man well 
As always, thank you so much, Dale. And Sarah, it was very nice to meet you. Thank you for joining us. Meet you too. Yeah, thank you. And yeah, she was like, she had a choice, stay home and go to bed or hang out at the office with me. And uh, she was here. I said, hey, why don't you just, you know, sit next to me and ride shotgun, you know? And so <laughs> here we are. So this is my wife, sorry, in Indonesia. The only way, the only way, the, the only way the American badass can become more badass is when. You have a hot as fuck woman next to you. So, yeah. Yeah, congrats. 42 year, old, 42 year old mother of four and grandmother of three, you know? Looking like this, man. 24. <laughs> That's all good, man. She, um, she's a trooper, you know? When, yeah. uh, you know, she, I mean, I, I, she's got an amazing story of her own, you know? Um, her life, growing up in a village, she's a village girl. Ended up uh, literally, literally, her mom sold her off to get married at the age of fifteen for uh, seven thousand dollars. Um, she ended up with a bunch of kids that, you know, from a bunch of you know men that didn't do anything, didn't pay for them, work. You know, she ended up doing all that herself and ended up working overseas um, in Taiwan, um, Singapore, Hong Kong as a maid, basically as a slave. Mm-hmm. Um, that's pretty much what they end up being. Um, to you know these these people, and uh, you know one thing led to another, and you know one day I showed up, and here we are, man, back in Indonesia and in Bali, living the dream, running our own business. She's actually running it. Um, she we're actually getting ready to start. Um, actually, she's getting ready to start a fish farm here in Indonesia, <laughs> so um, selling catfish to uh, catfish. yeah, basically to a processing plant that will export it, right? So. Um, so she's going to be a fish farmer. <laughs> she, she was she was director of our canine security company, and she'd still be doing that. But now she's going to be a fish farmer on top of on top of all that. So um, it's all good, man. Fuck yeah, man. living the dream. Fish farmer. That's when I met her. She told me she wanted to be a strawberry farmer. Yeah. Right? And uh, soon. we had to be somewhere cold to kind of do that. So Bali's not cold enough. For me. Up there, north there. Yeah. I ain't going all the way up there. They got a lot of volcanoes here. They're kind of cold. Yeah, they got like seven of them here. But then you can see them. Fuck that. Um, you can grow strawberries here, but I don't. I'm good right here where I'm at, man. Fuck that. Oh. And then real quick before, we, and I was gonna say, sorry, you you need to come on and do an episode sometime. She needs to tell her story. That would be badass. Oh, it's amazing. That would be no, seriously. I'm being serious. Yeah, I'll that. give you a little, just a little preview of it. You know, for example, at one point she thought she was going to go overseas to work as a, as a, what they call them helpers, right? Basically a maid. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you know, that a nanny, maid and nanny, right? Yeah. All in one. And uh, she ended up in Singapore in a, um, in a compound with about a hundred other girls. And she was in there for six months. Like, when are we going to get a job? Right. And basically what it really was, was a halfway house or staging base for the sex trade. Right? They were selling these girls off internationally for sex, right? Um, that's what it was. And uh, human trafficking. And she actually managed to escape because she's pretty small and the girls were able to lower her out of a window, to a window and lower down. And it's a long story, but I'll, I'll save the story yeah. for her words later on <laughs> and some of the other stuff that's happened. But, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's sad what happens in this part of the world to women. Um, you know, and and the way people are treated, you know, it's not, you know, Americans, man, you don't know how good you have it 
Um, the, our poorest Americans are rich here mm-hmm. in this country. Um, we treat people. I don't give a shit what you know. Black Lives Matter, Marxist, socialist, <laughs> communist say um, about cops. Let me tell you something. Wait till you come to you know the rest of the world and see how cops treat people. Yeah. And you go down. We got it good in America. Look, I've lived in, worked in, or, or visited over ninety different countries, and uh, in Hong Kong. I love Hong Kong. I loved Hong Kong. Now it's, you know, it's done. It's communist China. Um, yeah. You know, the Brits fucked that up by giving it back to them. But uh, but while we were there, you know, it was not unusual for her to walk down the street, for example. You know, and she's like 90 pounds, five foot. So she looks like she's on meth because she's pretty small. Um, and so and she's not, though, but she's yeah. just tiny. Sure. And, uh, you know, the cops were just randomly, hey, you come here and take her purse from her. Go through her purse looking for drugs. Yeah. You go, well, you must be on drugs because nobody can be skinny like that, right? And so they would literally pull out a piss cup, right? And right there in the street, make a piss in the cup Jesus. and then test it for drugs, yeah. okay? Now, you think about that shit. That happens, you know, that happens on this side. There's other stuff that happens, okay? You can't post post certain, uh, certain things on social media, opinions, right? You'll get... You don't get censored. They literally send the police and the intelligence units to come looking for you and haul your ass off. Um, it's not just here. It's everywhere, right? So um, when you look at this part of the world and how people have to live compared to how we live in America, all the shit that you heard about how bad America is, all this crap about racism, man, it's all bogus BS compared to here. And some of the most racist people I've met in my life Right there in Hong Kong, mm-hmm. Singapore. Okay, um, I've been discriminated against for being white. I had a taxi driver not picking up when I did. I'm a white American who drove off and left me. I'm like what? You know, and made it pretty clear you're a white American. Screw you. You gone. You know, and so you're, it's it's alive and well everywhere. Um, the racism it's actually more prevalent in the rest of the world, not just here in, in Asia, but even in Europe. I've seen it. I mean, I've seen it, man. Well, I'm not like, damn. Um, you know, but nobody's talked about that. Everybody just wants to, you know, point to America, yeah. how bad we are. And we're, man, I tell you what, compared to the rest of the world, we are saints. Our country is a great country. It was. Um, and that's why, I'm, and my wife will tell you that, man. She's been there. She's been to the U.S. She's lived, She's been all over Asia. You know, when you ask her how she's been treated and listen to the story she tells you, it's like okay, we ain't got so bad after all. Yeah. Um, you know what's funny? I, so I'll, I'll just throw this in there real quick um, for anybody that's listening. So about a week ago, two American girls here, black girls, Americans here, lesbians, right, got on Facebook and invited all their friends to come and live in Bali, right? And they told them, hey, it's a great place to live. It's inexpensive. It's paradise. And oh, by the way. You know, get out of America. It's a socialist, communist shithole now with the new, with Biden. And I'm like, wow, these must be like Trump. Trump. And these are LGBT. These are lesbian, black girls, pro-Trump, anti-Biden. And they're <laughs> inviting all the friends to escape while you can and come here. Well, that didn't go over too well with the Indonesians because they're like, wait, just because your country now is a shithole, doesn't mean don't be bringing all your American friends over here and take our jobs and shit, right? Yeah. It's like, you just stay over there. Yeah. You create your own your problems, you, you manage it, right? 
And no, they, they actually were like up in arms about that. And the police picked these two girls up downtown, not even at home, picked them up in their slippers and shorts and literally from there took them to the airport and deported them. <laughs> they, didn't even, they didn't even go home and get their shit and you get out of here. Just like that and gone, you know? Um, think about that for a minute, right? Fuck yeah. Think about hey, that. America, they don't do that. Yeah, yeah no. It's Come on, illegal aliens. I, no, I'm, I'm all for what that they did, man. Fuck yeah, protect your country. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with protecting your country and your people. Let me tell you, you're very nothing nationalistic here, not just Indonesia. There's nothing wrong with nationalism. But, it's a, there's nothing yeah. wrong with a good, strong nationalism. That doesn't, nothing, that doesn't mean fuck other people. It. it just means take care of your own. That doesn't mean fuck every other country. That just means it's the airplane analogy. When the oxygen masks come down, you put yours on first so that you can stay conscious to help others. There's nothing wrong with taking care of your country. And that's not just America. That's Indonesia. That's fucking Ukraine. That's, you know, wherever. It doesn't matter. It's, yeah, it's all, it's like that here, right? That's And that's what's so amazing. And if you get caught here... Um, you come over here with, and you overstay your visa, dude. It's not like they're gonna put you on the bus. Well, there's no buses here. You gotta get on an airplane yeah. or a boat yeah. and send you home. You going to jail, man? Yeah. You're gonna get crushed, and you're never gonna get to come back ever, right? It's not. I mean, there's no leniency about that, man. You come over here illegal, you're going to jail for terrorism, man. They're gonna lock your ass up. That's you awesome. Know? They don't play the games that we play in the U.S. Yeah. That's what's so funny. We talk about America, about, you know, we're so mean and so ugly, to, you know, and we should be more inclusive to the rest of the world. Bad news, man. The rest of the world is not inclusive. Yeah. They don't do, they don't feel like we do. And they don't play by those rules that we want to, that we think you're playing by. Yeah. You know, it's t- completely mm-hmm. different. But this is what happens when you have people in America, many of who have never left their state borders, mm-hmm. right? Never been outside the country. I have no clue what the rest of the world is like. Yeah. And they're sitting there trying to armchair quarterback politics, you know, and and, and basically, you know, um, virtue signal, you know, what we're supposed to be like, because that's how the rest of the world is. No, it's not. When you've been to the rest of the world, I don't mean one country. And I'm not talking about going to Cancun or Bahamas, okay? Yeah. Um, yeah. That don't count. Yeah. You know, go to the rest of the world, man. I've been all over the world. I've been to, you know... So, I mean, Uzbekistan, Afghanistan, all of the Middle East, Southeast Asia, Africa. I've been everywhere, man. And I see how it works. And it's not like they would have you believe it's, it's working, man. Um, there's discrimination everywhere. Um, there's there's not this tolerance that Americans think that we should be tolerant like everybody else. Hell no, but everybody else isn't tolerant at all. Yeah. You know, there's, they're basically shaking down my wife on the street, shaking her purse down for no reason other because... She looks like she might be a meth head. And while you're at it, pissing his cup. What? You know? I don't know, man. It's, it's nuts, man. It's crazy. Well, well, shit. You know, that well, that happens, though. That shit happens all the time. Well, well um, fuck. When the, when the podcast takes off and gets bigger and makes more money, fucking hey, Dale, I might move to Bali. I'll go get my green card. I'll come out there. I don't give a shit. Just remember, I didn't invite you because I don't want to get deported. No, for the record, <laughs> Dale did not invite me. And as a matter of fact, I don't. I might say that he might say, "Fuck off, don't come to my island." So, I don't, if Dale, if I, I if I if I bring some, you know, when the podcast gets big, I'll bring a bunch of money. I'll, I'll create some jobs. I'll earn my keep there. I'll create my own. Dale, we can we can buy our own island, and you will be you will be the head of security. 
Shara, you will run the business, and uh, we'll set up a radio station there and broadcast. And uh, we'll just we'll invite Ted I. We'll get some of your military friends, and we'll just establish our own country. Yeah, there's 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 anywhere between fourteen and twenty one thousand islands in our Pelago. I bet here. we could buy um, one. I bet we could buy yeah. one. Yeah, I mean, some of them are only like you know about five feet by five feet, but you know, like build up or yeah. right? Yeah, <laughs> no, if, we just need to find one. We need like I don't know. I think like five acres. Do that. We could have our own spots. We're gonna set up our own country. You heard it here first. We're gonna set up our own country. Dale is gonna be the Secretary of Defense. Sorry, oh, yeah. sorry, oh, yeah. gonna be the Secretary of State. And um, I will be dictator, and uh, yeah, we will have more. We'll have more canines than people, and we'll have a very strong border system. All right, Dale. Sorry, th- very nice to meet you. And uh, Dale, as always, thanks for coming on. And uh, American Badass will be. It'll be in the description, sticky in the top comment. It's a fantastic fucking book. Dale's a goddamn great American. Hopefully, on Audible soon enough. And part six next Sunday. All right, well, see you then, brother. All right, buddy. All right, man. Stay safe. Take care. God bless. Bye-bye. 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 Bye, sorry.